The Avengers. That's what we call ourselves. Sort of like a team. Earth's mightiest heroes type thing. Avengers, time to work for a living. That's my secret. I'm always angry. I am on the side of life. You get hurt, hurt him back. You get killed, walk it off. I'm here to talk to you about the Avenger Initiative. I'm your host, Andrew, and I'm here to talk to you about the Avengers. Welcome to episode 75 of Some Assembly Required, your weekly adventure into the annals of Earth's mightiest heroes, the Avengers. This week, we are taking a look at Avengers number 70, When Strikes the Squadron Sinister. This week's issue is written by Roy Thomas, pencils by Sal Busema, inks by Sam Granger, letters by Sam Rosen, and it comes to us in November of 1969. Before we get too deep into our issue here, I just want to say how excited I am that we have made it to 75 issues. This has been a lot of fun for me so far. I hope you have also been enjoying, and I look forward to several hundred more episodes and issues worth of Avengers. Very excited, a lot of fun. We are getting close to some really good Avengers material. The Kree Scroll War is coming up, and it's going to be a blast. So taking a look at our cover, this cover has a lot of potential, but I honestly think it could use a better background. The white on gray background isn't really doing it for me, and even though there are some really great looking heroes and villains in nice vivid colors, it feels a little bit washed out and maybe even a little bit unfinished, as if the backgrounds were only in pencils and inks. So I would have liked to have seen maybe even just a nice sky blue, something to help fill it in. The pavement that the Avengers are standing on is white. That could be filled into a darker asphalt kind of color, and it would have helped finish out the cover a little bit more which would have been nice. Our issue this week opens with Kang the Conqueror eschewing a feast in order to concentrate on the upcoming battle between the Avengers and the chosen champions of the Grand Master. And Kang goes so far as to actually smash the dishes placed in front of him. Kang's response here is a little bit much. I understand his frustration, I get it, but it seems to me that he's taking it very, very poorly. And while a short temper is a very stereotypical villain response, it isn't necessary, and I find it especially pointless in a character like Kang, who is so much better served when he is cool and detached and demonstrating a significant amount of control. It's a far more intimidating effect. Rage has a place with certain characters, but Kang really isn't one of them. Leaving his banquet hall, Kang makes his way out to question the Avengers that have remained with him in the 40th century, specifically Vision, Black Panther, Wasp, and Yellowjacket, about how things are going with the battle against the champions of the Grand Master. But the Avengers, in particular Black Panther, divulge that Grand Master won't speak to them because, as he thinks of it, they're only pawns in Grand Master's game with Kang. Now, Black Panther's bitterness and irritation towards Kang in this scene is palpable. I think it's interesting that given the fact that Black Panther is the member of the team who convinced the Avengers to aid Kang in the first place, if you remember back to last issue, Black Panther was not among the Avengers taken as a big group. He was 
taking to Kang's sentry separately and was convinced of Kang's plan. And then he helped convince the rest of the Avengers. It strikes me that Black Panther hasn't changed his mind about helping Kang, but maybe he's starting to reconsider a little bit. It also may have something to do with the fact that Black Panther was not among the Avengers chosen to face off against Grandmaster's champions. Maybe a little bit of a feeling of frustration, of helplessness, so that when Kang asks, oh, how's it going? Black Panther gets a little bit short with Kang, and that's very understandable. So after Kang finally confronts Grandmaster about the delay, the Grandmaster reveals that he is telepathically using the computers on his home planet to create suitable opponents for the Avengers. As this conversation is happening, though, a couple of Kang's soldiers secretly take position in an effort to assassinate Grandmaster. Before they really get into place and get set, Grandmaster uses a mere thought and destroys the soldiers, ending Kang's planned assassination. Now, Kang is taken aback by these sudden turn of events and agrees when Black Panther comments that this is a pretty stupid thing for Kang to do. And Kang states that he's not going to make the same mistake twice. Now, what I don't understand here is why Kang would even consider assassinating Grandmaster. I struggle to figure out what Kang hopes to gain from this. It wouldn't actually give him the power that he craved, right? The power over life and death and the ability to save his beloved Ravana. At least at the moment, he has a chance to bring her back by winning the game. So why would he risk it? Now, having said that, I really like Kang's response to his failure. Knowing Kang and being the conqueror that he is, it's obvious that failure is not something he's accustomed to. But Salbusima does an extremely good job here of letting Kang's facial expressions demonstrate A, the surprise in Kang's failure, and B, the feeling of reproach Kang has towards himself that he's not going to be that foolish again, that he made a mistake in trying to assassinate Grandmaster, or at least in failing, and that should he decide to do something like this again, he's not going to be anywhere near as careless with his actions. Turning to Kang's time scanner, Kang, Grandmaster, and the Avengers watch their teammates Captain America, Goliath, and Thor back in the 20th century, where they were sent by Grandmaster to face off against his champions. Shortly, though, the trio is joined by a newly restored Iron Man. In this case, Tony Stark has recovered from the events from the illness that brought him low that we saw last issue. Knowing that information, originally I had assumed that either this wasn't the real Iron Man, or perhaps it was Iron Man from a different point in time, like maybe a little bit in the past or maybe a little bit in the future. But based on how this issue plays out and some of the things that Iron Man talks about, neither of those appear to be the case. It just seems as though there has been enough time having passed since the Avengers left for Iron Man to have made a recovery. So just as the Avengers are done catching up Iron Man on the details of their mission, the Squadron Sinister, the chosen champions of the Grandmaster, again appear before the Quartet of Heroes. Because if you remember the end of last issue, the Squadron Sinister appeared before the trio of Avengers before Iron Man's arrival and made a general declaration of of intent 
So again, the Squadron Sinister appears before the four assembled Avengers, although the members of the Squadron admit that they are not actually in fact present, but that the Avengers are only seeing astral images. And as such, the Squadron Sinister decides to fill the Avengers in a little bit on their origin, since there's really no risk to the members of the Squadron at this moment in time. And as they explain, being the master of time and space that he is, Grandmaster actually reached back in time and altered the lives of four Earthmen in order for them to become the superpowered villains, Nighthawk, Hyperion, Dr. Spectrum, and the Wizard. Again, if these characters sound and look familiar, it's because they are parallels of four of the founding Justice League members, Batman, Superman, Green Lantern, and The Flash. So while I appreciate the need to explain where these new characters come from, it's a little bit of a cop-out and it breaks up the flow of the story a little bit to try and explain the origin in the middle of the story in this fashion. Right? We're just starting to get the momentum going, we're just starting to get the book really rolling into this game, if you will, and we're going to stop and we're going to spend a page on exposition. I will admit that, thankfully, this page that we lose to the exposition isn't really needed. I don't feel that by the end of the book, things are really, really rushed. I think that's in part because it's a three-part story, three-issue story, and so the proper amount of time has been allotted to fully develop the story, but at the same time, I always find it a little wasteful to use up valuable page space in an issue like this. Having said that, there is a really cool sense on this page of Grandmaster being a puppet master to these four villains. And one of the things that really kind of helps build that is we see Nighthawk swinging on a pair of gymnastics rings and those rings kind of go up into Grandmaster's hand and it really looks like he is a puppet master with strings hanging off of his hand. So it's a really well done effect. Just because I don't think we need this page doesn't mean I don't think it looks good. And if you're going to do a page like this, obviously you need to make it count. As they finish, the four figures dissolve into the image of four famous locations on Earth, specifically the Statue of Liberty, the Taj Mahal, Big Ben, and the Sphinx. And the implication here is that members of the Squadron Sinister are located at each of these four locations. So with that, Iron Man sets off for the Taj Mahal, and Thor uses the power of Mjolnir to help transport his fellow Avengers to their chosen locations of battle. Now, why these four locations? I'm kind of curious. As we'll see here in a moment, Captain America goes to the Statue of Liberty, and that makes sense for obvious reasons. But really, the other three characters end up in locations that have no connection to the character in general, to the villains, to the fights, other than their famous locations, and fairly readily identifiable. The other thing here is that Grandmaster brings the Avengers to this random location in the desert, but then just leaves them there and assumes that they can get to their given arena all on their own. So my understanding was that the game was about combat and not the fact that they have to somehow figure out how to get to where they're going to fight first. Yet Grandmaster's champions are already in those locations and presumably have been the whole time. I think it's just adding an extra element to the fight that's 
not all that necessary. One last thing, though, we're seeing a little bit of a new version, a new use of Mjolnir's powers. It builds off of the space-time portal that Thor used against the Masters of Evil way, way back, but it's a little bit more controlled and it's a little less broad-reaching, and it gets the Avengers where they need to get. But I always like to see these little takes on powers, right? We knew that Thor could summon this space-time portal, but previously he really didn't have much control over it. Now, obviously, he's got quite a good deal of control over it, so he's got a better handle on his powers, and it's a far more useful application of that power. First up is Captain America, and as I mentioned before, he is facing off at the most fitting of locations, the Statue of Liberty. As he evaluates the situation upon his arrival, Cap notices that there's a figure watching from the statue's crown. However, he fails to notice that there is a snare set on the ground, and Cap is caught in this snare as he goes forward to investigate the figure, and he is battered against the side of the statue and knocked unconscious. I will say I am a little bit disappointed that Cap fell victim to such a simple trap. Being the most tactically-minded Avenger, he should have been on the lookout for these kinds of things, and I'm impressed that, as we will see, Nighthawk was able to pull this off. When Cap comes to, he finds himself the prisoner of Nighthawk. Even more astonishing, though, than his imprisonment is the fact that the pair are flying in Nighthawk's aircraft, and they have the Statue of Liberty in tow. Now, Captain America wakes up and has a brief conversation with Nighthawk, and then goes to look out the window. This shouldn't be a thing, because I can't figure out for the life of me why on earth Nighthawk didn't tie up Captain America. Now, granted that these two individuals have never actually met, and that Nighthawk Hawk doesn't necessarily understand the specifics of how dangerous Captain America is, but the nature of the game that they're involved with should indicate to Nighthawk that he should be taking a significant amount of precautions, and in this case, he completely ignores those precautions. In the end, it's much to his detriment. Now, in Nighthawk's defense, I gotta say, stealing the Statue of Liberty is a really good scheme and an excellent way to get under Captain America's skin. If you're trying to set him off his game, rattle his cage a bit, this is a perfect way to do it. The other obvious one is to start bringing up Bucky and watch him have a meltdown, but again, since Nighthawk doesn't really know Cap, the Bucky thing's not really going to work for him yet. So when Nighthawk threatens to destroy the Statue of Liberty if Cap does anything to interfere with Grandmaster's plan, Cap immediately reacts and destroys Nighthawk's detonator with his shield. Then, in a last-ditch effort to destroy the statue, Nighthawk leaves the aircraft and attempts to release the statue in midair. But again, Captain America's quick thinking saves the day as he attacks Nighthawk and manages to turn the tables when Nighthawk tries to kill Cap with an explosive capsule. Cap puts his shield up and the shield absorbs the blast throwing it back in Nighthawk's face and knocking out Nighthawk. Now, when Nighthawk leaves the aircraft and goes down to the cables that are holding up the Statue of Liberty, where exactly does he think he's going? They're in midair. It's not like he has anywhere good to go. Even if he drops the statue, he's still got to deal with Captain America. But at the same time, it makes a perverse amount of sense that Nighthawk is going for the scorched earth policy here. If he can't win, then he's going to destroy the statue so that Captain America can't win as well. Now, that gets me thinking, about this game a little bit and 
things are starting to strike me as a bit uneven. Cap has this massive and complex objective that he has to achieve. He's got to stop Nighthawk, he's got to save the Statue of Liberty. Whereas Nighthawk has any number of fairly small and easily achievable objectives with which he could be considered having obtained victory. He could have defeated Captain America outright. He could have destroyed the Statue of Liberty. He can drop the Statue of Liberty and still destroy it. There are a lot of possibilities available to Nighthawk and really only one possibility available to Captain America. So we're already seeing that this game of the Grandmasters is rigged fairly heavily in Grandmaster's favor. Also, I want to know how an explosion like that, although not huge, is still sizable, how it didn't damage the Statue of Liberty or sever some of the cables. It's a fairly substantial risk that Captain America took there, and although it paid off, I don't think that he really could have made that judgment as it happened. I think he just got lucky there. And of course, back in the 40th century, Kang has to take the opportunity to point out to Grandmaster that one of his champions has already fallen. So next up to fight is Iron Man, who has made his way to the Taj Mahal and is going to face off against Dr. Spectrum and his sentient power prism. So as Iron Man approaches the Taj Mahal, he is blasted by Dr. Spectrum and he's only saved by his new armor. So because of the events of the last few issues of Iron Man, as well as last issue of Avengers, Iron Man has had to create himself a new set of armor because the life model decoy that tried to take over his life had stolen his armor. And when Iron Man defeated the life model decoy, it was wearing the armor. So Iron Man needs new armor. It's also really interesting to watch the split between the prism and Dr. Spectrum. It's really kind of cool. It's almost like an external multiple personalities or Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde kind of arrangement. And while the prism isn't necessarily the more dominant personality, it is definitely the more aggressive personality. It's constantly yelling at Dr. Prism and berating him for not killing Iron Man just yet. Now, Iron Man, being the genius that he is, thinks quickly and catches on to something that Dr. Spectrum said and bathes Dr. Spectrum and his prism in ultraviolet light, which drains his power. Dr. Spectrum collapses to the ground and yet another of Grandmaster's champions is defeated. Now this is interesting because I had to read this several times in order to figure out what Dr. Spectrum was referring to. And what I think he's referring to is the fact that he describes his shield as being polychromatic. Now this means it is showing a variety or change of colors. And realistically, that's about all I can find to latch onto as to what Iron Man was referring to. My only problem with this is while ultraviolet light isn't a color of visible light, it is still a color. It is still chromatic, if you will. And so based on that, the shield should have protected against ultraviolet as well. But again, it's the only thing I could figure out that Iron Man might have latched onto. I will also admit that the coloring in this book is a little bit weird. They have a very odd way of showing ultraviolet light. It's kind of this green-gray light that just completely blankets over... Dr. Prism. I would have figured that maybe like a slightly purple halo or something would have been a much better fit, but this is what we've got. 
So now that's two of Grandmaster's champions down. And for our third battle, we go to Egypt, where Thor arrives, but finds no enemies. Only when the ground begins to quake beneath him, and Hyperion explodes through the ground, does Thor realize that he's fallen victim to a trap. Now I gotta say, this is a great panel of Hyperion smashing through the earth in order to hit Thor. There's a lot of action. I love the way the rubble looks. The coloring is really cool. It would have been nice if it weren't on a white background. That's just a pet peeve of mine. I think you guys have figured it out by now. But otherwise, it's a really great action panel. At this point, though, we're now on to our third battle. And I'm trying to figure out how the Avengers have gotten so fortunate that each Avenger has faced off against the villain that they were best matched to fight. Right? Captain America fights Nighthawk, who's kind of the Batman character. Right? They're both regular guys with intelligence and maybe some more extra strength, but they're not particularly superpowered. Iron Man fights Dr. Spectrum, who's kind of the Green Lantern. So they both have the energy projection and things like that. And then now we see Thor fighting Hyperion. So we've got the two powerhouses, the two tanks, if you will, fighting one another. It's just interesting to me that the Avengers just so happen to line up so perfectly against the villain which they are most able to pair off with, face off against. So as Thor faces off against Hyperion, Hyperion takes a moment to explain his origin to Thor a little bit better than we saw before, and we find out that Hyperion is actually the survivor of a subatomic world, and that he was rescued by Grandmaster and transported from being this subatomic size into the size of a regular person. Now, as it is later revealed, this is a false memory implanted by Grandmaster. After Thor narrowly avoids the worst of the ambush, because he definitely takes a couple of good hits there, he finally confronts Hyperion, only to find that Mjolnir bounces off this most powerful member of the Squadron Sinister. And I'm a little bit curious why Mjolnir bounces off Hyperion without a scratch. It's certainly not the first time we've seen something like this, i.e. Radioactive Man of the Masters of Evil had something similar, but it's a fun twist that honestly gets me every time. Thor is so linked to his hammer, both metaphorically through his attachment and general close association with the hammer, and literally because he can only be separated from his hammer for 60 seconds before he turns back into Donald Blake, whenever the hammer is ineffective, it piques my interest because I really want to know how Thor is going to have to figure this one out. Thor is not exactly what we would call a thinking hero under normal circumstances. He's not Iron Man, he's not Captain America, he's not Reed Richards, he's not Hank Pym. There are a lot of the super scientist level, super intellect level characters. Thor's not one of them. Thor hits things really hard. Well, when hitting things really hard doesn't work out, I find that to be a very interesting plot twist for that character, that they have to step aside from their strengths and embrace their weakness in order to win. So after this, Thor is struck low by a blast from Hyperion's atomic vision. Again, this is a parallel to Superman with his heat vision. And Thor is forced back on the defensive, and he's got to just block the incoming attacks with Mjolnir. But this at least grants Thor a moment to think. And in this instant, he hurls Mjolnir at Hyperion, who in his overconfidence gives Thor a straight up free shot. He actually says, basically do your worst. 
And instead of using Mjolnir to just hit Hyperion, which would have, again, ineffectually bounced off, Thor instead uses Mjolnir to encircle Hyperion and is able to trap him in a bubble of glazed sand, basically in a crystal ball. Now, I am totally good with the whole encasing him in glass thing. It looks really cool, and it's a very clever solution to the problem. But my only question is... Why does Hyperion get small again? I realize his origin is he's from a subatomic world, but he was brought from there and made normal size. So the lack of explanation here is a smidge disappointing to me. Finally, we get to our last hero, Goliath, who is in London, preparing to face off against Grandmaster's final champion. Before he can do this, though, Goliath is actually confronted by the Avengers ally, Black Knight, who wants to know what's going on, and even offers to help Goliath, although because he's involved in this game, Goliath is forced to reject Black Knight's assistance. Again, I always have to wonder why it is that superheroes can't seem to communicate with one another when they meet. More hero-on-hero fights have begun simply because one side claimed they were unable to explain what was going on. The fight starts, and then eventually, when they do explain things, everything is perfectly cleared up. If they had just started the beginning with open and clear communications, everything could have been avoided. It's a superhero trope. It's just one that I find frustrating, especially given how often it's used. So with this, Black Knight prepares to depart, but before he does, Black Knight and Goliath both notice that something is traveling around Big Ben at amazing speed, such that Big Ben actually looks blurry. And of course, this is none other than Goliath's adversary, Wizzer. And although Goliath outmatches him in size, Wizzer is able to speed around Goliath, making really what is a near tornado around him. Unfortunately, because his erstwhile ally is under attack, Black Knight decides to intervene anyways, even though he was requested not to, and he attacks Wizzer with the flat of the Ebony Blade, which is, of course, his mystical ancestral sword, and this does not go well. Goliath quickly attempts to step in and stop Black Knight, but obviously the damage is done. With an outside interference from Black Knight, Grandmaster just interrupts the game and removes both Avengers and their competitors for a final round of the competition. Now, of course, at this point, Grandmaster is just looking for an excuse because he's down three losses to zero. This again begs the question though, what are the rules of this game? Is Kang required to win all the matches? Because right now, if it's whoever wins the most, first off, four rounds is a really terrible way to do that. But for argument's sake, let's say it's whoever wins the most, Kang has already won, but obviously Kang hasn't won because not only does this round have to go on, but when it's interrupted, Grandmaster claims that the fight isn't fair and that they're going to go on to a final round. So that implies that Kang has to win all four matches. And if that's the case, this game is so horribly one-sided, I again have just the most difficult time trying to fathom why Kang would agree to the terms. Now, I know what the stakes are in Kang's mind. I know that it is the life of the woman he loves more than anything in the world, the Princess Ravana. But the odds are just so one-sided here that I've got a hard time believing anyone, even someone as confident 
as Kang would honestly think that this competition is a viable option to bring back Ravana. So with the removal of the Avengers and the Squadron Sinister, we find the Black Knight is left alone to swear that he will make amends for this interference, though he's still fairly uncertain as to what he has done and even more uncertain as to how he's going to make amends. In the end here, I do like that Black Knight, although he doesn't understand what's going on, he realizes that he has screwed up and that he is actively taking responsibility to try and make things right. And we will see those actions in our next issue. Overall, I think this is a really good middle issue for the story arc. It picks up nicely from the last issue. It leaves us on another good cliffhanger. There's a couple of nice little twists in the story, and there's a lot of just fun action and a couple of good character moments. It's a solid issue. It's not groundbreaking, but every issue isn't going to make history. Remember, you can find us at AvengersAssembly.com, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and you can find this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and YouTube. Next week, we are going to be taking a look at Avengers number 71, Endgame! All right, hey. All right, good job, guys. Let's just not come in tomorrow. Let's just take a day. Have you ever tried shawarma? There's a shawarma joint about two blocks from here. I don't know what it is, but I want to try it.